This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland toko inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is sponsored by CNF Legal in Fakatu Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners. It will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545 8080. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for episode 4 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show we're going to be exploring some of the ways you can leave a legacy after you die. Perhaps the most obvious legacy is continuing the family line or whakapapa. But some people can't have children. Others like me choose not to have children. Sometimes a child's death precedes their parents. So not everyone leaves descendants after their death. Living a creative life is another way to leave a legacy after you die. I can't remember a time when I didn't write or feel restless because I was too busy doing other things to write. When I was very young, I wrote fiction. Then I studied journalism and media at uni. My first job was for a student union in Melbourne where I resurrected the student magazine Pandora's Box after it had been on hiatus for a number of years. Then I worked for a number of communication agencies before I started my own business as a custom publisher. But I was so busy writing for other people that I found I didn't have time or, more importantly, creative energy for my own writing. It wasn't until I was in my late 30s when I'd come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't be having children in this lifetime that I started writing about my own life. I put together a proposal for a non-fiction book called Procreation. That's procreation with a hyphen and quite distinct from the word procreation. An Australian publisher expressed interest and asked me to submit a sample chapter. Then my partner Steve was diagnosed with bowel cancer and when I became his primary carer, I abandoned the project out of necessity. Steve died 18 months later. I was 41 at the time and immediately felt compelled to write about my life with him. Writing is, after all, how I make sense of my world. It was a fierce compulsion and I was aware from the very beginning that it would be a way to both honour his life and leave my own legacy of sorts. It took me almost seven years to finish writing a manuscript that I thought was ready to make its way out into the world. This included an academic year at the International Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University of Wellington, during which I wrote the first full draft. I use the term academic year 
with inverted commas, because it wasn't quite a year. It was about nine months. And in many ways, it felt like I was living through the gestation of this creative child with all its ups and downs, triumphs and hardships. Since then, I've learned that getting a book published can be a long game, an endurance race, a perseverance test. But as I've more recently discovered, there are writers who are even more determined than me to publish a book before they die. And they're miles ahead of me when it comes to perseverance, persistence, grit, tenacity. I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a moment. The most universal legacy you will leave is, of course, intangible. These are the memories and feelings people hold for you in their hearts and minds after you die. In most cultures, these memories begin to be shared during ceremonies and rituals that begin soon after you take your last breath and continue in the days following, especially around your body's disposal. These collective memory-making events can then continue weeks, months and even years after you die. One of the most famous cultural ceremonies is Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. This ceremony originated in Mexico but is now practiced elsewhere. This year it just happens to be taking place on Tuesday the 2nd of November, just after today's show first goes to air on Fresh FM in the top of the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. One of the traditions associated with the original Dia, Dia Los Muertos involves building home altars called ofrendas, which are lavished with the favourite foods and beverages of the departed, along with flowers, photos, personal belongings and other mementos. In Aotearoa, the Wellington Dia Dia Los Muertos Day of the Dead celebration takes place on Tuesday the 2nd of November at the Public Trust Hall in Tearo. It opens at midday and continues until 8pm, with performances beginning at 6. Here in Fakatu, Day of the Dead Nelson ran for many years at Founders Heritage Park. For a number of years, the family, the festive family day, featuring Mexican food and drinks, piñatas, face painting, altar building, music and performances, even a chilli sauce competition, took place alongside the Nelson Arts Festival. Unfortunately, because of COVID restrictions, it won't be going ahead this year. The organisers are very much hoping celebrations will recommence in 2022. My first Day of the Dead experience took place in Mullumbimby, not far from Byron Bay, on the far north coast of New South Wales in Australia, where I lived and worked for 12 years before moving to Aotearoa in 2012. My first Day of the Dead was in November 2010, and it was only six months after Steve had died. The very first Byron Bay Day of the Dead took place in Heritage Park on the banks of the Brunswick River in Mullumbimby in 2007. Organised by the Natural Death Care Centre, it was spearheaded by NDCC founder Zenith Virago, who was my guest on Episode 1 of Death Walker's Guide to Life. The NDCC always envisaged that the Day of the Dead would be a holistic death event, an attempt to bring about cultural change by establishing for our children ourselves a better, more natural and supportive way to do death and loss. For most people, without the rawness of a recent loss or the intensity of a funeral. The Byron Bay Day of the Dead continues to be a free community event for anyone and everyone who has lost someone or somebody they love. It combines community art, personal memento making, message writing and a gentle, holistic death ceremony of remembrance. It is not aligned to any other cultural or religious ceremonies and is always on the second Sunday of November. Well, always until COVID, of course. I'll have more about that in a moment. Free from tradition, the Byron Day of the Dead is for people to acknowledge their dead loved ones fully, to allow them to be with their living ones, 
living loved ones fully at Christmas. The 2021 Day of the Dead was scheduled to take place on Sunday, November 7th at its new home at Crystal Castle. However, there's been a recent local outbreak of COVID-19 in the Northern Rivers, so the event may or may not take place then due to COVID restrictions. When I checked yesterday, the NDCC were hoping it might be able to go ahead at its original home back in Heritage Park on the banks of the Brunswick River, and a backup date of 21st of November had been announced. So this is all lots of celebration and ceremony, but perhaps the most obvious way to leave a legacy after you die is, of course, by leaving a will. Coming up, I'll be talking with Marie Austin, who works at CNF Legal, the show's sponsor, and specialises in wills and probate. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life, and it's time for Death in Print. In this segment in each show, I talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. Today, I can't wait to tell you about a memoir titled No Pressure, No Diamonds, Mining for Gifts in Illness and Loss, which I've only just finished reading. Right now, it feels like the most profound book I've ever read. I almost have no words to describe what this book means to me. I'm still sitting with the feelings and insights flooding through me not only through my mind, but my heart and even my soul. But I'm going to try and find the words. The author, Terry Dillian, self-published No Pressure, No Diamonds in November 2020. It's extraordinary that she even wrote the book, let alone self-published it. You see, Terry started writing the book after she was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is also known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, bit of a mouthful. Here in Aotearoa we tend to know it as motor neurone disease but this is an umbrella term given to a group of closely related disorders which affect the motor neurons which are the nerve cells that control the voluntary movement of muscles. ALS is one of those disorders although the term appears to be used synonymously with motor neurone in, in North America. So Terry was only 35 and newly married when she was told to get her affairs in order before facing total paralysis and death. Living in Colorado, she had a successful career as a psychotherapist and was a dedicated Buddhist meditator. But Terry, just as my late husband Steve did, slowly discovers the flaws in the popular narrative that anything can be healed with the right attitude or insert guru, guide, diet or treatment. In the months that follow her diagnosis, she sets out in dizzying pursuit of an unlikely cure, travelling deeper into the Byzantine landscapes of alternative medicine and self-help in the hopes of being a rare and miraculous survivor, the one to beat it. As she rapidly starts losing control of her muscles, it's quite astonishing that she manages to travel internationally twice, spending about a month in Peru doing Ayahuasca, I haven't got that right, Ayushka ceremonies, and then a week in Mexico to attend a 900-person retreat with Joe Dispenza. By then, in the North Hem- Northern Hemisphere winter of 2018, she can barely feed herself, stand, hold a water bottle, or speak in anything but the most garbled and soft voice. She cannot go to the toilet without assistance. As she grows increasingly disillusioned with what she sees as toxic positivity and bypassing spiritual gurus, 
Terry is forced to dig even deeper and deeper into what it means to heal herself. Like Terry, my late husband Steve pursued a raft of cancer treatments not recognised by the orthodox or mainstream medical system. Again, like Terry, he was also dedicated to his spiritual practice. The last 18 months of my life with him radically changed my own belief systems. I've written an as-yet unpublished memoir called Beyond the Blue Door about what it was like for me, but reading Terry's book has given me some insight into what it might have been like for him. The very best memoirs, in my opinion, are those with the right balance of vivid moments where you feel like you're right there in a scene in the person's life, and authorial insight, that is, the perspective and analysis of the author today reflecting on why they behaved the way they did in the past. Terry succeeds in finding this balance. Her moments of self-reflection became the diamonds for me while reading this book, extraordinary self-insights that feel universally applicable. Terry says she wrote this book to shine a light on how to find resilience while living with terminal illness, and she's achieved this. The key question of the book is, where do we find healing when no cure or easy answer exists? This is a book for everyone, because you don't necessarily have to be physically unwell to find healing. Terry wrote No Pressure, No Diamonds, using technology that tracks her eye movements, composing each sentence letter by letter. I will never again complain about how much work went into writing Beyond the Blue Door, nor how much work there is ahead with my current writing project. I recommend No Pressure, No Diamonds to anyone and everyone who wants to learn how to make the most of their one precious life, as Pulitzer Prize winning poet Mary Oliver says. You can buy it in a number of ways from Terry Dillian's website, and the link to that will be up on my website, deathwalkersguidetolife.com. You're listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. In today's show, I am delighted to welcome Marie Austin from CNF Legal. Marie is a registered legal executive who has been working in the Nelson region for the past seven years. She works with clients in areas relating to conveyancing, commercial matters, estate administration, wills and enduring powers of attorney. When she's not at work, Maria enjoys spending time with her four sons and enjoying all the Nelson Tasman region has to offer. And as I've just learned, she goes to the gym twice a day. Kia ora, Marie. Welcome. Kia ora, Kiri. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you very much for coming in. And um, so thank you also to CNF Legal for their sponsorship of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. It's greatly appreciated. In my sponsor intro at the beginning of each show, I mentioned the fact that about 1,500 people in New Zealand die each year without a will. What are some of the reasons for people, you know, missing this kind of major step? I think a lot of people uh, probably think they don't need a will. They think, what assets do I have? Uh, Why do I need a will? Or they will just assume that it's automatically going to go to their next of kin. Essentially, this is true, but there are rules around that to how much each person will get if they don't have a will. Okay, so how much on, um, so I thought maybe one of the reasons people die without a will is because they don't think they can afford to get one done. So it'd be good to know, like, roughly on average, 
how much someone would have to spend to get a, a, a... It's just a nice, simple will. People come in and say, look, I just want a nice, simple will, and then it turns out being six pages long. Uh, so it's just a nice, simple will, husband and wife or two partners leaving everything to each other and then to the kids. You're looking at around about $300 per will. Obviously, if it's a tenants in common situation where they own property in their own names and they want to leave uh, life occupancies to other people, it gets more complicated and obviously the price increases from there. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, I guess considering what it enables to happen after their death, that's not a huge amount of money. No, it's more cost-effective to have a will than it is to not have a will for afterwards. Yes, definitely. Actually, so But people can go and buy one of those DIY kits from their local bookstore or or newsagent or something. But you caution against DIY wills. Tell me a little bit more about why. Yes, often uh, they're more trouble for us administering the will afterwards than they you know than the cost for the person to purchase the will uh, there's often mistakes uh, a common one is someone might leave everything to John Smith but his full name might be Jonathan Michael Smith but there might be three John Smiths in the family so which John Smith is is benefiting so it can cause costly litigation if that if that was the situation um, often they will appoint someone as their trustee but not have an executor which is two different things, which has also caused more hassle. Mm. Mm. And what are some of the other things that can go wrong with DIY wills? DIY wills. They can be uh, <laughs> incorrectly witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, in New Zealand, wills have to be witnessed by two people who have to witness the will maker also signing, and they have to attest to that. So it can be incorrectly witnessed. Um, there could be uh, spelling errors and omission of information in the will. For example, if they're appointing so-and-so as their executor, but leave out their full name, then we have to. It's just more costly to to fix that further down the track when we're applying for administration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think I also read somewhere that um, marks or ble- you know, sort of looks if it looks like the will, the paper has been tampered with yes, anyway. That yes, that can be an issue. As that well. is an issue. So quite often, our wills are stored in, at home in people's houses in like a file, and they have other documents in in there with paper clips. Sometimes these paper clips uh, form indentations on the paper. So when we send off to the probate court applying for probate, they want to know how that mark got there. Was there another document attached to the will, and why is it there? So normally we have to do another affidavit to explain how this got here, why it's there, and know there was nothing else attached to the will, which then occurs more cost for the estate administration Mm. process. I'm going to jump to a question I was going to ask you a bit later. It just seems like a good time to ask it now. Where is a good place to store your will? (laughs) Well, I would say in a deeds room at a a law firm. Uh, Most deeds rooms are fire resistant. They have um, uh, humidity because obviously paper can get damaged by insects, by damp, by mould, by fire. So, um, yeah, the deeds room is probably the best bet. It's locked up every day. Um, our law firm, for example, we store all our deeds electronically as well. So if a situation arose, like in Christchurch, when they had all the earthquakes and nobody could get into the firms to retrieve all the deeds, everything's stored electronically. So if need be, we can get probate on a electronic copy of a will. Okay, great. And, and that obviously is, is slightly more legit than having someone have their own electronic copy at home because yours will be under lock and key and and, and very secure. Okay, can you give us a brief overview of the things that must, by New Zealand law, be included in a will? Sure. So the will must be in writing. The will maker must sign the document and at least two witnesses must be together in the will maker's presence when the will maker signs the document and, and witness and attest that they have signed that document. 
there has been cases where uh, like a text message has been proven by the courts to be a valid will. So there is a section that we could apply for under the Wills Act Section 14 to get uh, another testamentary document declared as a valid will, even though it doesn't meet the requirements of a valid will under Section 11 of this Wills Act 2007. What's the next step? So what is probate and when and why does it apply? Is it all for all wills or just for no. some? Okay. So probate applies if you have assets in your sole name over the value of $15,000. Now, this day and age, most people uh, you know, have KiwiSaver. When they start working, they sign up to KiwiSaver. And over the years, that accumulates quite quickly to $15,000. That may be the only asset they have. They may not have $15,000 in their bank account. Their car may not be worth $15,000, mm. but they have a KiwiSaver account which needs probate. $15,000 is the current threshold of when we would need to apply for probate. Okay, great. Well, I didn't know that. That's <laughs> something I've learned today. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so what are some of the things that people include in their will that they shouldn't? <laughs> uh, not necessarily that they shouldn't. I mean, I guess they can include anything they would like. Yeah. And um, we've seen quite a few wills where people have uh, directions in regards to their pets. So we've had one recently where uh, the a willmaker wants their cat put down when they pass away as an elderly cat and cremated with them and things like that. So we would never say you shouldn't include that if that's their wishes. Um, obviously, if the executors sort of think, hmm, then maybe we won't put this two-year-old German shepherd down and, you know, decide to rehome it, um, that's sort of up to them. Also, willmakers can't really dictate from beyond the grave. Uh, so they can't say, here, I give this gift to so-and-so, but only if they use it for this. Uh, you can't really do that. You give them the money, then they can use it for what they like. Mm. Um, it just makes it uh, costly if you know the other person opposes that, or, I mean, who polices it as well? Mm. The executors aren't going to make sure the beneficiary you know, does what the testator has said in the will mm. for the rest of their life with those funds. So with that example of um, instructions regarding a pet... Is it also possible when you do a will to refer to a separate document where you might put that information or or that you might b- provide more detail about some of your personal belongings and yes, who, you, yes. who, who you want to give them to? So yeah. it's quite common for someone to have, uh, maybe in their will packet, not necessarily attached to their will, um, a list of uh, items or chattels they want to leave to particular people. Uh, if, for example, uh, they want to leave you know, the crystal to the to their daughter and you know the, the tools to their son that's a bit stereotypical but you know that sort of thing you know they can have a list we don't necessarily attach it to the will mm-hmm. if they had specific gifts of jewelry that they wanted to leave to a granddaughter or a niece or a nephew or whatever whoever um that could be in the will i leave my you know my 10 carat diamond ring to so and so Okay, great. Yeah, so that doesn't have to be all in those pages of the will itself. It can be just referred to. It, it can be, yeah, mm. it can be, yes. Mm. And the executors um, should be aware that there is a list, for sure. Okay, great. All right, so here we are in the Nelson Tasman region, which is now the one of the um, most ethnically diverse in the country. Actually, I think I believe it's the third most ethnically diverse. And so many people who live here, including myself, um, might have been born overseas and may still have close family and possibly even significant assets overseas. So I'm just curious whether um, what advice you would give to people like me and my fellow overseas-born people. And um, should we have 
do you have wills in both countries or will one will in New Zealand suffice? Um, you can assets? have wills in both countries if you want, mm. but you'd have to itemise or say in the will that it was only dealing with assets in that country. Um, normally, the situations that we've had recently is you know people have got assets in Australia or the UK, uh, so we would get probate here and then we'd send it over to Australia or the UK and get it resealed in the courts over there. Now, this is easier if it's a Commonwealth country because we're all sort of based on the same sort of legal structure. Um, other countries are a little bit more difficult, but it can be done. Um, we just sort of either A, apply for probate in their courts under their legislation, or we would uh, find a agent who would um, go through the process with us about getting our New Zealand probate court, probate document resealed in that country to deal with the assets over there. So on average, how much time would that take if someone... <laughs> it would take a while, wouldn't it? Would it would take a yeah, long, yeah. long time, yeah. Generally, we sort of say the, it's an executor's year. So um, from the date of probate, the executors generally sort of have a year to call in all the assets. And that sort of gives them a bit of time to... Um, you know, uh, determine what the estate has in the way of assets and a way to deal with them. Mm. I mean, estate administration is a drawn-out process. It's nothing happens quick. Mm, mm. So if, if someone doesn't have significant assets overseas, but maybe they've got family who are going to be beneficiaries overseas, would the simplest thing be to just have a New Zealand will and and potentially have a local executor <laughs> yes yes yeah. it, it is definitely easier mm. if you had for example an executor who was in the UK and your will was here in New Zealand we would have to send the original will along with the uh, affidavit and the documents to apply for probate to the executor over in the UK they would then have to go to a solicitor there swear it or a notary public swear it in front of them and then courier it back to us so the chances of you know something happening with the postal system could be a little bit you know higher than normal. Yeah, and actually that seems to be more likely these days with um, all the disruptions to the postal right. services and, with COVID. And more costly, more yeah. costly for the client yeah. or the, for the estate. Great. So in addition to wills, what other legal documents do you recommend we prepare well in advance of our eventual demise? Uh, definitely enduring powers of attorney. I feel like these are the sort of documents that um, if you need one and you haven't got one, you can't get one. So you need to do them while you've got your capacity because enduring powers of attorney, generally you need them when you lose your capacity and by that time you can't get one. So definitely enduring powers of attorney, I would recommend them for anybody. Mm. Is that the only form of power of attorney or are there uh, enduring there another, and other There types? is another one just called a power of attorney or a deed of delegation uh, that only applies if you're out of the country or f for a particular purpose. So an enduring powers of attorney relates to uh, while you can be happen can take effect while you're in New Zealand, if you lose your capacity or if you're physically incapacitated, depending on how we structure the document. Uh, but whereas the deed of delegation power of attorney only relates to while you're out of the country. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So that would just be for a specific period of time. Yeah, so mm. for example, you're a fisherman and mm. you were going overseas fishing on the fishing boat and you were selling a property, you'd prepare a, a deed of delegation power of attorney for your partner or friend to um, deal with the sale of the property for you and sign the documents relating just to the property. Okay, great. I've also heard of um, both advanced healthcare directives and advanced care plans. So that's another document that people can, legal document that people can prepare um, while they're still healthy and well. Yes, that's correct. So 
Uh, these documents are also sometimes called living wills because unlike you know, ordinary wills, uh, they provide for events that can occur while you're still alive. And the normal will obviously applies after you've passed away. Mm, mm. Um, the advance care directive is given because it's a written record of your wishes uh, made in advance of your suffering ill health. Okay. And so they would cover things like whether or not you wanted to um, be resuscitated. Yes, yes, it does. So to what extent are advanced healthcare directives or advanced care plans legally binding? They're not, but they give the family and the medical professionals some clarity and indication of your wishes when it comes to treatments and things like that. So they sort of ask you questions in regards to uh, your religious beliefs um, and what you regard as for importance in your remaining life. Uh, they ask about your family background and that sort of thing. So it's a, a varied document, I guess, in regards to a lot of information. So when they're treating you and um, you know it comes to that sort of end of life stage, they're aware of what your wishes are and your whanau's wishes and things like that. So they can sort of accommodate different mm-hmm. situations that may arise. Because that's in the situation, isn't it, where the health professionals will be consulting the next of kin or the immediate family members that's for them right. to make really big, tough decisions at that time. And uh, yeah, yeah, possibly, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Now, to finish up our interesting kōrero today, thank you very much. This is a bit more of a light-hearted question. So in each episode of Death Walker's Guide to Life, I ask my guests to nominate one song they'd like played at their funeral or wake. And I'm gradually compiling a Deathwalker's Guide to Life playlist on Spotify mm-hmm. featuring farewell songs. So what is one song you would really like played at your own funeral or wake? I would have to say Maroon 5, Memories. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to discovering it on um, Spotify and adding it to the playlist. And um, Excellent. So thank you very much for your time today, Marie. It's been great chatting to you about Will's Enduring Power of Attorneys and Advanced Healthcare Directives. Thank, Thank you, you very ha- much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I've just been chatting with legal executive and wills and probate with Marie Austin from CNF Legal. Now it's time for the second bookend for the show, Death on Screen, when I briefly review a film, TV series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying. Today I'm going to talk about a documentary titled I Told You I Was Ill, The Life and Legacy of Spike Milligan. I've chosen this film for two reasons. One, because it illustrates what can go wrong when you don't have a legally watertight will. And two, because I was part of the Above the Line production team for this doco. The film is directed by Kathy Henkel and produced by her and her then-partner Jeff Kanan, who at the time lived in Clunes, which is halfway between Byron Bay and Lismore on the far north coast of New South Wales in Australia. I was the interactive director, which meant I worked alongside Jeff and Kathy to tell the story using new media, in inverted quotes, as it was known at the time, aka the internet. This was back in the heyday of interactive new media development and we secured a serious amount of funding from the Australian Film Commission. At the time, this was a dream job for me because my dad was a huge Spike Milligan fan. He'd grown up listening to The Goon Show and it still played on ABC Radio and so whenever I visited visited him in his workshop, it was often playing on the crackly wireless tuned into ABC FM. So in some ways, Spike felt like part of my own family. Four of Spike's children collaborated with us on the documentary and multi-platform program. 
which ended up being called I Told You I Was Ill, The Life and Legacy of Spike Milligan. Upon marrying Sheila, his third wife, um, Spike's existing will was automatically revoked as it is in many legal jurisdictions around the world, including Australia and New Zealand. So basically, when you get married, you have to get a new will. In his former will, he'd left everything to his children, but instead he'd made a new will which left to his entire estate to Sheila. And there were some doubts about how it had been witnessed. The children attempted to overturn the will to no avail. In October 2008, Sheila sold an array of Milligan's personal effects at an auction when she decided to move into a smaller home and she didn't have room for his belongings. This included a vast legacy of his books and memorabilia um, and apparently, according to Wikipedia, a grand piano salvage from a demolition and allegedly played every morning by Paul McCartney before it um, made its way to Spike Milligan's home. Spike had once quipped that he wanted his headstone to bear the words, I told you I was ill. He'd battled all throughout his life with mental health illness. He was buried at St Thomas's Churchyard, but the story goes that the diocese refused to allow his epitaph, I told you I was ill. So a compromise was reached and the epitaph was printed in Gaelic, or probably etched into the stone, I should say, in Gaelic. Um, So it's a Gaelic translation of I told you I was ill, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Um, But it was also underlined by an English um, inscription, Love, Light and Peace. Now, Sheila Milligan died well after we finished working on that documentary. Um, It was in June 2011. And she wanted the additional epitaph referring to her. She'd asked, requested that um, before she died. And there was a bit of a hoo-ha about that as well. And apparently Spike Milligan's headstone disappeared from his grave for a number of years before it was returned with that inscription. So obviously they came to some sort of agreement. I told you I was ill was uh, briefly available on TVNZ, I believe. Some friends of mine contacted me when they saw my names come up in the credit and had no idea I'd worked on the film. It's now available on DocPlay, and the great thing with DocPlay is that you can sign up for a free 14-day trial. And I also have a few precious copies of the DVD left for sale if you'd like to buy one of those. And to find out more, once again, please go to my website, deathwalkersguidetolife.com. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Find out more about the show and how you can follow me, Kerry Sunderland, at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, ka mihi, a big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life, so give Maria Robin a call on 03 808 or visit their website, cflegal.co. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.